This is a sunflower seed. If we put this in the ground and we water it, we give it food and we let sunlight come to it and we wait, it's eventually going to give us a cantaloupe. <laughs> of course not. You guys know that. It's going to give us a sunflower. If we plant a sunflower seed, we're going to get a sunflower. Now here's the thing. We don't have to let the sunflower grow. You know, maybe someone gave us the seed and described what a sunflower is, told us it's beautiful, it's amazing, it's wonderful, and we wanted it. So we took the seed, we planted it, started to grow, and we realized, my gosh, I don't even like the color yellow. So we cut it down. Or maybe it was just too arduous to plant it. <coughs> maybe it took too long for it to grow, and so we stopped it, and we simply let the weed growing next to it come up. Because that has a pretty flower anyway. See, that's, that's actually my way of gardening. <laughs> Jennifer always, she'll walk along the path to our back door, honey, can you go get those weeds? I'm like... No, if we just let them grow, they create flowers, and we'll just call it a perennial garden. I don't have to do anything. <laughs> but no matter what, the seed is not going to change what it wants to become. What it's going to become is going to become a sunflower. Or nothing at all. Of course, all of us here know this. That's not an advanced botany lesson, I know. And if that's what you want to demand your money back, because that was horrible. What interests me is this. If we know this truth about seeds, why are we always so surprised to discover, after years of trying this thing called Christianity, that this, Christ crucified, is the only flower that the seed is trying to grow? In my own life, and I hear it all the time, so I'm not alone. I hear people talk about, man, it's such a struggle to live the Christian life. I'm beginning to think that the majority of the struggle has to do with the fact that this is not the flower we are expecting to grow. We work so hard on trying to become good at all these things that we have come to identify as Christian. And we succeed and we fail, and we succeed and we fail again, and we cry out to God, God, help me, I want to be a good Christian. And God's like, whoa, you're trying to grow cantaloupes. I'm trying to grow a sunflower. Well, we don't like the sunflower. So, we keep on ignoring the central fact that this seed is trying to grow this flower, and we keep trying to grow something else. We constantly fight against the very spirit trying to help us. The very spirit we pray to, to help us. And so while we have the spirit of God, we don't live as though we do. This was the problem in Corinth. The Corinthian believers accepted the seed Paul planted, 
but refused to let the flower, the only flower that was going to grow, grow. They were cultivating all sorts of different flowers, yet they were attributing them to the Christian God. So Paul had to write this massive letter to explain to them, you don't get those gods out of this seed. But we have the mind of Christ. This is how Paul ends the third section of his first essay that makes up the book of Corinthians. So if you weren't here the first couple weeks, you'll have to catch up online at some point. But anyway, there's about five essays. Bailey has discovered five essays that make up the book of Corinthians. The first one is called The Crossing Christian Unity. It runs from about 1 chapter 10, verse 10, through 4, verse 16. The first essay is in four sections. Today we're starting the third section, The Wisdom of God Revealed Through the Holy Spirit. Now, this section of Paul's letter that we just read has unfortunately given birth to all sorts of ideas within Christendom that are really not part of Paul's theology. But of course, this is indicative of reading scripture out of context of the whole Bible. Reading English translations of the Bible without any reference to original language or original culture. And what happens most to Paul is that people read Paul apart from his own overriding theology of the cross. So what happens is, many people say Paul here is teaching that there are two classes of believers. Those who have the Spirit and those who don't. Or that he's teaching that some people get a lot more of the Spirit than others. Or that some people based on a certain spiritual maturity, have access to the deeper wisdom of God in faith. But I think if we read it closely, we're going to find that this is not the case. Paul is just coming off this epic hymn to the cross that we explored for a few weeks. And during that hymn, he establishes clearly that the deep wisdom and mystery of God in our faith is Christ crucified. That is the deep wisdom. He declares that the beginning, middle, and end of Christianity is the cross, which is why you should spend your whole life studying it, because it's deeper than we could ever imagine. And... He says clearly that the cross is all he himself, oh, by the way, he's an apostle, determines to know. And that no one should boast in anything, that no one may boast before him, because we should all instead be pushing into the madness of this cross. Why then... And if you were here the week I, I did an overview of that epic hymn of the cross, it's, it's the most brilliant, maybe the most brilliant piece of writing ever in the history of literature. Why then would he suddenly overturn everything he just said and create groups of believers which would encourage the very boasting that he just rejects? Gordon Fee puts it this way. Paul is not here rebuilding what he has just torn down. 
He is retooling their understanding of the spirit and spirituality in order that they might perceive the truth of what he has been arguing to this point. Paul's concern throughout the whole letter is to get the Corinthians to understand who they are in terms of the cross and to stop acting as non-spirit-filled. See, it is the main issue I have been suggesting from the beginning of this series on Corinthians. The believers in Corinth were acting more like Corinthians than they were like Jesus Christ. They had this seed, but they refused to let the flower grow. The Corinthians, as we will see as we dive into the letter, had convinced themselves that the many gifts they had received from the Holy Spirit, especially the gifts of tongues and prophecy, and the big gifts, were evidence that they had arrived. They were convinced that their redemption was complete because of these gifts. They were confusing the gifts with the giver of the gifts. And they thought, because they had been given these wonderful gifts, that they now understood the deep wisdoms and mystery of God. And, our <clears throat> and so Paul here, before he takes them to task individually for the use of these gifts, and that's what we're going to see in the letter, he's taking people to task all the time, but remember, it's in light of his overriding theology of the cross. And one of their abuses of the gifts, by the way, which we'll see clearly as well, is they were boasting about how they were superior to other believers because they had the bigger gifts. He's going to take them to task, but first he establishes what it really means to have the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit is really trying to do in believers. And he says in that piece we just read, all believers have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit in all believers is trying to make us like him. Here's Witherington. The problem then in Corinth is not that some Christians are not spiritual or do not have the spirit or mind of Christ. It is rather that though all the Corinthian Christians have the spirit, they are not living as spiritual persons ought to live. They are acting like non-Christians. And Paul's basic response is stop. Their practice has not caught up with what they believe in principle. Their cultural assumptions have not been critically evaluated in light of their Christian faith and of the presence of God in their lives. I'm going to read those last two sentences again. Their practice has not caught up with what they believe in principle. Their cultural assumptions have not been critically evaluated in light of their Christian faith and of the presence of God in their lives. Welcome to the church in America. Which is why Paul so clearly in his opening introduction 
to this letter, to the believers in Corinth, and to believers everywhere. That the Holy Spirit knew one day we would exist. Now, I want to try to... Uh, I want to try to just explain something that sometimes gets misunderstood with me. But it's also important because as we get into this letter, this is what Paul is getting at. Okay? <clears throat> I personally do not have a problem. Do not. I don't. Honestly, I don't. With Christians that are into politics. I don't have a problem with Christians that are extreme Republicans. I don't have a problem with Christians that are extreme Democrats. I don't have a problem with Christians that are into Ron Paul, whatever his party is. And I don't have a problem with even Christians that are into whatever the Tea Party is. I like tea. If that's not what they're about, I'm sorry. I don't have a problem with those things. And one of the things I love about Cana this is one of the few churches I know where we have people on both ends of the political spectrum, and I love it. I don't have a problem with Christians that are into hypernationalism. I don't have a problem with Christians that espouse the benefits of capitalism. I don't have a problem with this. Honestly, I don't. Here's my problem. And this isn't mine. This was a learned problem from reading Paul and reading the Gospels. Like I always used to tell my dad. My dad has given me his political opinion. I listen until he crosses that line. And that line is, all of a sudden, his political opinions are God's political opinions. And read this again. Their cultural assumptions have not been critically evaluated in light of their Christian faith and of the presence of God in their lives. God is not a Republican. God is not a Democrat. God is not a Tea Party. God is not Paul Jones or anybody else running for government in this country or any country in the world. God is God. And he is interested in his kingdom, not ours. If God was interested in our kingdom, when he showed up here in the flesh for 33 and a half years, why didn't he talk about it? So, please don't misunderstand me when I'm critical of American culture. All we are about to read as we go through this series in Corinthians is highly critical of Corinthian culture. Do not fall into the Christian trap that all he's talking about is bad morals and good morals. If our worldview, and I don't care how good our morals are, is not driven by the Jesus Creed, which is love God, love others, guess what? It's not driven by Jesus Christ. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness did not come from the Bible. I have been studying the Bible for 40 years. It is not in there. Their practice has not caught up with what they believe in principle. But here's the problem. I don't think it's about just catching up. I think what has happened is this. They're still finding the true wisdom and mystery of God, the power of God and the wisdom of God, which is Christ crucified. They're still finding this madness. They don't want to believe it. 
So they're not even sure what they believe in principle. And therefore, they're not allowing the Holy Spirit to change their lives because they don't want to be made into a crucified God. They are planting sunflower seeds and they're hoping cantaloupes are going to grow. What about us? What about us? We have the mind of Christ. Paul wrote it this way to the Colossians. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you. And he summed it up this way to the Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Christ in us, trying to make us little Christ, not anything else. Will we let him? This is Ernest Gordon. He was a prisoner of the Japanese during World War II, and he was part of the infamous Burma Railway crew. Some of you are familiar with that story when the Japanese made their prisoners lay down a railway through the jungle. During the building of that railway, some 80,000 prisoners of war died. That is 393 deaths for every mile of track. At one point during his imprisonment, Gordon was suffering from a combination of beriberi, worms, malaria, dysentery, and typhoid. He was six foot, three inches tall. He weighed 100 pounds. They put him in the death house to die, but he didn't die. And in his book, To End All Wars, he tells of witnessing a transformation at the camp that is only explainable by the mind of Christ in us. The prison camp had become a place where the prisoners survived on hate, self-interest, and every man for himself. I sort of get it. They're prisoners of war. It's challenging to me when I choose to live like that in a world where I have pretty much everything to do. One man, Dusty, he lived like Christ. In fact, he nursed Gordon back to health when he was in the death house, often by giving him his food. Dusty almost died of starvation. Little by little, his example caused the transformation to spread. And then one day, the Japanese guards were counting work tools at the end of the day. And one of the guards yelled out, there's a shovel missing. The head guard flipped. And he told the prisoners, if someone doesn't step forward right now, whoever took that shovel, you're all going to die. And he picked his rifle up and started aiming it. And a man, a prisoner, stepped forward. That head guard was so furious, and he came down on this guy with such anger and hatred and vengeance, he beat him and he kicked him until the guy died. And then the rest of the Japanese guards finished their counting, and they realized they had made a mistake. No one took the shell. This guy gave his own life, so everyone else in that camp could live. It shook the whole camp. And transformation really began as others wanted this mind of Christ that could cause someone to love like that.
He's adored his own words. Death was still with us, no doubt about that. But we were slowly being freed from its destructive grip. We were seeing for ourselves the sharp contrast between the forces that made for life and those that made for death. Selfishness, hatred, envy, jealousy, greed, self-indulgence, laziness, and pride were all anti-life. Love, heroism, self-sacrifice, sympathy, mercy, integrity, and creative faith, on the other hand, were the essence of life. Turning mere existence into living in its truest sense. You know, here's the thing about Corinthians. Here's the thing about this Bible. Paul is going to get angry. And Paul's going to say some things and write some things that you're wondering, wait, this guy is all about the cross. How can he do this? It's because he's so angry. The same way God gets, not angry at us, but angry with the sin that destroys us because he loves us. Look, selfishness, hatred, envy, jealousy, greed, self-indulgence, laziness, and pride. Those things don't hurt God. They hurt the people he loves, and that's why he hates them. He doesn't get his nose bent out of shape. Oh my gosh, to being lazy. I'm so offended. No, he doesn't. It kills us. It's anti-life. And he came to earth and said, no, this is, how, this is life. Giving yourself for others. Love, heroism, self-sacrifice, sympathy, mercy, integrity, and creative faith, on the other hand, were the essence of life. True, there was hatred, but there was also love. There was death, but there was also life. God had not left us. He was with us, calling us to live the time. In hell. We too, if we're going to call ourselves Christians, are being called to live this life. This divine life. It's the seed. It's the only seed in us. Remember, the Trinity is one God. The Spirit in us is Jesus Christ. And this seed wants to grow in us. Because it's life-giving. And all the other things we grasp at are not life-giving. The pursuit of happiness ends at the exact opposite place of its promise. And I know at first this seems impossible. I get it. The Jesus creed is impossible. Loving God. Loving others. Loving God when our lives are collapsing all around us, when friends die of cancer, when family members get taken from disease. It's hard to love God, isn't it? And loving others? Forgiveness, grace, mercy. These are things that are impossible in our humanity. But Paul told the Corinthian believers, Paul is telling us, The divine life is possible because we have the mind of Christ. Thank God. Amen.